we believe this. We believe that everyone has a story. And we believe that everyone's story matters. We believe that learning that story, being aware of that story, learning how to tell that story, and allowing God to continue to write that story uh, to be told is, is just life-giving. It's, it's transformational. And I, I just had a sense before I walked up here, Stephen, that uh, I think there's some people here today that need to hear this story. Um, I don't know. It was just like I had this, this moment where I, I don't know. I don't know who you are, but I just know that today... I think is going to be a key story because we're going to be talking about uh, the story of Second Chance. And so I want to introduce you guys to Stephen Young. A lot of you know Stephen. Some of you may not. Uh, Stephen works with a ministry. In fact, he kind of created the ministry called Home Street Home, which is rapidly becoming one of the most well-known, well-respected ministries in Nashville for our homeless friends and our homeless community. In fact, so much so that Taylor Lewan has promised him that he will give him all of his fine money this year toward that. And so Stephen is going to be in a really good position this fall. So you need to just go ahead and pray and, and cheer that, that Taylor Lewan acts like a fool this year uh, because all that fine money that the NFL is going to find him is going to go to, to Stephen's ministry. But if you have not seen or you have not been in the, in the, the moment with Stephen when he ministers, when he is helping people on the streets, under bridges, in woods, finding housing, even when our government is throwing him out of their housing and destroying their camps, he is on the ground ready to run. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason that the Taylor Lewans of the world and so many others have navigated and, and begun to partner with Stephen because Stephen ministers from an experienced place. Stephen is not just a business executive that decided, you know what, hey, let's begin to, you know, figure out what to do with the homeless. Stephen ministers to the homeless because he made a deal with the Lord that if he ever got off the streets, he would go back to the streets and help others. Stephen spent several years on the streets of Nashville as a homeless man. And that was not always the story. And so my question, Stephen, as we get going is this, is how did you end up in a place on the streets that I know you never expected that's where you would be. How did we end up there? Well, to, for the first part of uh, my time on the streets, I looked at how I got there completely different than the way I look at it now. Mm. Uh, I blame the economy. I blame a marriage going bad, I blamed everything that I could think of other than myself. Uh, but I had spent the majority of my life not blaming myself for all my problems. Uh, but what I've come to understand uh, through a new relationship with God and through counseling was it goes back to my childhood. Uh, and that's what I try to explain to people uh, when they're asking about the homeless and how do they become homeless. Something happens in every one of them's life that eventually leads them to the street. And for me, that moment took place when I was 12 years old. And uh, I had just given my life to Christ. And a few months later, I was at a youth camp. And uh, the deacon, one of the deacons from the church, uh, sexually molested me. And uh, that sent me down a path for the next 40 some odd years that eventually led to me becoming homeless because I was running. I was running from everything and everybody. And uh, my trust level had been destroyed 
and not just because of the deacon, but because of my family situation, responses from my parents towards that, uh, it just sent me spiraling out of control. And so how many years, give us kind of a timeline there, you spent about how long on the streets in Nashville? Almost five years. Uh, and it was uh, an eye-opening uh, experience, never in a million years, uh, as Jason said, did I think I would become homeless. Uh, I had a preconceived notion of what being homeless was mm. and why people were homeless. And uh, I had a pastor friend of mine uh, from a church that I formerly went to. He said, Stephen, this isn't going to make any sense to you right now. He said, but here's what you have to understand. He said, you were called to be homeless. And I looked at him and I said, okay, you're going to have to explain that one to me. <laughs> and he did very briefly. He said, I knew at an early age I wanted to be a pastor. And he said, I went to school for that. He said, people are called to be doctors, lawyers, teachers. They go to school for that. God had a plan for you. And that five years was your school. That was preparing you for what God had in store for you. Okay, so let's go on the street. Five years is a long time. It's not like you spent five days, five months. Right. You know, it wasn't short term. No. In fact, that's probably, I'm going to guess, I don't know the exact terms, but at some point that became probably chronic. Yes. I mean, five years is a long stretch. Yes. And so you've got this guy saying, okay, this is kind of your school. Well, I've walked the hallways of this school, and I know that some people don't like to be in school, but then there are other students at times who will have that aha moment and go, oh, that's why I'm here. So what was it that was kind of your defining moment, or maybe the better question was, was that defining moment not a what, but a who? So what happened to get you from this place that had become chronic, become a lifestyle, I'm going to guess to a degree had become normal, mm -hmm. comfortable, how did we get from there to where we are now? Well, it was, it was a person and it was a situation. Uh, I had been on the streets probably going on two years uh, when a gentleman pulled up on the corner that I was stood at every day selling the contributor uh, and introduced himself. And it was a very short, brief conversation. He brought me a sausage and biscuit from McDonald's. And uh, that was our first contact. Like I said, very short, very brief. Because at that point, I didn't trust nobody. Didn't believe in anything. Uh, but he kept coming back. His name is Mike Dotson. He's now the chaplain of our ministry. And he's been a dear, dear friend to me now for going on eight years. And, uh, but Mike never gave up on me. Uh, I gave him every opportunity and every reason to give up on me. Uh, it took him a year to get my last name. Uh, it took him probably six months to get more than three or four words out of my mouth. Because like I said, that long on the streets, you lose the ability to trust anybody or anything. That was the person. The situation was this. And, uh, it was Christmas Eve, 2013. I'd been out there for a while, and I was as broken down as you could get. I was at the lowest point in my life, and believe me, that's saying a lot because I had been at many low points 
in my life. I'd also been at many high points, but I was done. I was done living like I was living. I was done being looked at like I was being looked at every day and being treated like I was being treated every day. Uh, so even though I'd never had a drug problem in my life, uh, I knew that I did not want to go on. And I made a promise to myself that I would not experience another holiday season alone and on the streets. So I started buying up pills. And uh, I went over, and as I tell the story now when I speak publicly, to the luxurious Hallmark Inn on Trinity Lane. <laughs> For those of you that know that area, you know why we laugh. Uh, but it was $19.95, and hey, I was homeless and on a budget. Uh, so, but I checked in. It was the Hotel California effect. I checked in with no thought of checking back out. And uh, like I said, it was Christmas Eve, and uh, I sat down at the table in that hotel room and uh, had my little glass there. And I emptied out over 150 pills onto the table. And uh, I was done, folks. I was done. And I just happened to glance at the little AMFM clock radio that was next to the bed on the nightstand there. And it was 9 o'clock Christmas Eve. And I said, it's time. I'd written some letters out. They were sitting there on the table. I didn't know if anybody would ever read them or care to read them. Uh, but I figured... I needed to, you know, do that. The next thing I know, Jason, there was a knock at the hotel door. And uh, it kind of startled me. And as I spun around to look at the hotel door, I caught that clock again. And it said 11 o'clock. Now, I'm sitting in a chair with no arms, sitting upright. The pills are still on the table. The glass is still there. The letters, nothing disturbed. And I'm, I'm confused. What's going on? Uh, so as I'm sitting there in kind of a daze, trying to figure everything out, there is a knock again. Only this one is louder. And there's a voice attached to it. And the voice simply said, Sir, are you checking out or are you staying another day? Folks, it wasn't 11 o'clock Christmas Eve. It was 11 o'clock Christmas Day. At that point, I couldn't begin to tell you that I knew what was going on because I didn't. And because of what had happened to me, back when I was 12 years old, God was the last thing that entered my mind at that moment. Uh, but here's what I did know. I knew that I was feeling a peace that I'd never felt before, ever, in my entire life. And there was this still, quiet moment in my mind. Some people call it a voice or whatever. Uh, however you want to describe it. But here's what I knew for the first time in my life again. I was going to be okay. No matter what happened, no matter what had happened, it was going to be okay. And literally March 
I walked off the streets for the last time, just a few short months after that. But like I said, I didn't correlate it to God right up front. That's where Mike came back into the picture because he started connecting the dots for me. And it was at that point that I realized it wasn't God's fault. I thought it was. That man that did that to me was one of his chosen people. He was a deacon in the church. My parents, when I told them about it, they totally dismissed it. My mother looked at me dead in my eyes and said, I don't believe you. I don't know why anybody else would. He's a deacon. You're you. My father, in all of his, of all his infinite wisdom, said, what did you do to make him think that's what you wanted? I was 12 years old. Uh, but that was the moment. And uh, since then, it's, it's, it's been a roller coaster ride, and I've never looked back. And I'm having the time of my life. And so here's what I hear. I, you know, I hear that God initially used a McDonald's sausage biscuit mm -hmm. and a man named Mike to begin this, this process, this road, this journey to not just recovery, but the road to a second chance. Right. And, uh, you know, and here we are now making the most of those second chances. And then there's one more little twist I, I want them to know about before we kind of get into the main point of, of today is, is that speaking of second chances, so, so here we are, we're, we're March of what year? 2014. 14. So, you know, this is, you know, we're five years in. So here we are about four years in. You've got this ministry kind of beginning to build. I know there's some ups and downs with that. Anytime you're running a, a nonprofit, there's always those kinds of things. And then about a year ago, you get a text from a number that you don't even know. Now, I've never even heard of second chances like this. <laughs> never been a part of anything like this. But you get a text on your birthday saying happy birthday from a number that you don't know or a message. I think it, it was a, a message. It was a message on Facebook. Yes. And, and so... Who was on the other end of that message just saying, hey, I want to say happy birthday? Uh, I went through four marriages in my life. I was a lousy husband. Uh, my very first marriage uh, was to an incredible young lady. She was 18. I was 22. Unfortunately, I wasn't a good guy. Uh, it didn't last very long. Uh, so we got divorced. And... That was the last I saw of her or heard from her. Uh, Forty years. Forty years had gone by. Uh, that message was from her. And uh, <laughs> my very guarded response to her initial contact caused her to come back and say, I'm wondering if you know who I am or if you even remember <laughs> who I am. And uh, I came back and I said, well, yes, but based on my history and my past, I am very, very guarded. And I said, secondly, you've got to give me a moment to pick myself up off the floor. Uh, so uh, long story short, for the next couple of weeks, we chatted every day. Uh, then she said, hey, I think I'm ready for a phone call. And I said, okay, give me a call. That was on a Friday evening. Uh, no, I wasn't being chauvinistic or egotistical. I wasn't making any moves if she was going to make every decision and so I said okay you call me she did that was at six o'clock on a Friday evening and we hung the phone up at 7 30 Saturday morning 
and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And uh, she's the the love of my life. She was then. She is now. And she's the greatest gift that God has ever given me. And I don't know. I, I don't know your stories of second chances, but I've never known anyone to be separate forty years and then come back together in this beautiful unit. It's just mind-boggling, the second chance that you've been given, not just from the street, but that God has afforded you to completely reconcile and restore uh, that original original uh, marriage. And so I'm going to guess you agree with this, and this is what I want everybody to hear this morning from your story is that, and we talked about this beforehand, is that every day is full of second chances. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with the second chances that count. Because yeah. Mike wasn't the first opportunity. No. no. Andy's message was not the first opportunity. No. It's what you did with those mm-hmm. that counted. And, and the thing that I've learned is this. Uh, I thought Andy coming back into my life, but it don't get any better than that, right? Uh, and I thought, okay, it's all together. But even since then, I've had second chances. One with my son, who I'd been estranged from for 20-some-odd years. And uh, I get a phone call out of the blue after Andy and I get back together. And it's his mother who, <laughs> let's just say we didn't get along. Uh, but she said, hey, I want you to know I don't want anything. I'm not asking for anything other than to let you know that your son wants to talk to you. Andy will tell you, uh, I was floored. Uh, But he jumped on a plane, uh, came over from South Carolina. We went and had lunch. Now we talk two or three times a week. And uh, he has forgiven me. Uh, My brothers, the two that I have left, we now have relationships that we didn't have before. And uh, so it's a continual process. Those second chances keep coming. But they'll only keep coming if you choose to make the right decision when they appear. Right. And uh, here's what I know, and this is kind of going off script, but I've been asking God... What can I throw into this? Because a lot of you know my story. But what could I throw into this that is different? And here's what I've understood over these last few days as I've prayed and thought about this. Uh, people ask me how long how I, I was homeless. And what I've understood and what God has revealed to me, Jason, I was homeless for 62 years. Hmm. I was houseless for five. What God has given me that I've never had in my life, and I'm going all the way back to my childhood, is a home. And there's a difference. That woman has given me the home I've never had. My son coming back into my life has given me the home I've never had. So if I could challenge everybody in here tonight or this morning, to do one thing, get your home right. Get your home right. 
Husbands, get your home right. Wives, get your home right. Sons and daughters, get your home right. Because waking up every day now is a blessing to me. We were coming back from our trip to Boston. And yeah, we hated to leave. We didn't have the time of our lives. But for the first time, I was looking forward to getting back home. And then when you get your home right, don't be selfish with it. Share it. Share it with others. Share it with someone who is needing that home. Who is needing to know what home looks like. Because that's what Andy's done for me. She has finally, at 63 years of age, shown me what home truly is. And Stephen, I just got to say as we wrap this up is that I'm glad you found a home here. I remember a table that you and I shared one time at Portland Brew. And uh, you had called me and you had visited Wellhouse a couple times and and you said, I can't can't take another step and, and, and step into, you know, being a partner or without you knowing some things. And you and I sat down and you shared way more than you've shared today. You shared kind of your brutal history of who you were. And you were afraid, I think, at that moment that letting us or letting me know that would be a determining factor on whether or not you could call here home. And I don't know if you remember, but I remember looking at you and going, you done? <laughs> and then you said, is that all you got? Is that it? <laughs> and then we talked about God's God's how he just redeems and how he gives mm-hmm. second chances. And so I just want to say this as we kind of close this little part is that I can tell you that I, and I know so many others are glad that you stepped into a second chance. I'm glad that you stepped into that, that you made the most of that. You're continuing to make the most of that. And here's, here's what I know, Stephen, is that you're not just changing lives on the street. You're changing lives in this room. You've changed my life. You changed the way I see homelessness. You changed the way uh, I see marriage. I mean, there's just there's changes that have been made in my life uh, because of you stepping into and living into and making that second chance. And so uh, I want you guys to know, if you want to be a part of Home Street Home, come and talk to Stephen. He does every day, round the clock. Uh, he has just built such an incredible team. It's continuing to build. He's got such great dreams. And I know he's always looking for people to to not just in, in give in a physical way, like financially, but to be out there on the streets. And it's such a blessing to do that and watch uh, the way he interacts and the way he really does consider this community his friends, his family. And uh, so if you want to be a part of that, come and, and, and talk to him. Let, him. let him know that. But uh, I just want to say that everyone has a story, and you've heard part of Stephen's. I want to pray for you, and then I want to tell one more quick story. Father, this morning, I'm so thankful for Stephen. I'm thankful for the life that he... Uh, lives uh, in your name. God, I'm grateful for the second chances that he is continuing to, to live into, but I'm also grateful that he has now become an advocate for other people's second chances. That God, it's not just taking his second chance and considering himself uh, to be somehow uh, lucky, but God, it's bearing the weight of the responsibility that when you step into your second chance, it's our responsibility to go and be a second chance giver to be an advocate for, to be an extender of second chances to others. And I'm grateful that Stephen has chosen the streets of Nashville to do that. So, Father, just empower him, continue to to bless him, his ministry, and giving them the opportunity to change lives. Thank you for changing his life, and thank you for using him to change our lives. 
We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You guys give it up for Stephen Young. There's another story of someone found in the streets. In John chapter 8, Jesus finds a guy, finds, comes upon a scene of a lady who has been drug out to the streets. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus uses his position for the repositioning of someone else's life. Jesus had become known as kind of a teacher, had become known as a, a rabbi, had become known as someone who knew the law, who, who was well-respected, who had gained all sorts of popularity. And so what Jesus does in this moment on the streets, just like Stephen is on the streets, Jesus leverages his position to reposition this lady. So John chapter 8, I'm going to put this on the screen just to kind of give you a little background on what's going on here. Verse 1, it says, they all went home. He had came out of this meeting of sorts. So they had all gone home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So here's the scene of the morning. This is early. This is breaking dawn. This is like the sun has just cracked in Jerusalem, and so the streets are beginning to pick up business. You've got people that are going to and from work. You've got the marketplace that is opening, and so you've got kind of this hustle and bustle that is going on. And so in this moment, Jesus decides to go back to the temple. This is something that he had done regularly to teach people about this new covenant that was to come. And here's what was happening in that culture surrounding Jesus. Jesus had become incredibly popular but Jesus had also become, at this point, incredibly controversial. He had become someone that had, begun, had, had gained such popularity that it had become a threat to certain individuals. And so these individuals, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these kind of elitists, when it came to the religious world, began to be threatened by this message that Jesus was sharing. And the message was this. It was a message filled with grace it was filled with love. It was filled with freedom. It was filled with second chances. And so you've got these people known as the Pharisees that had become a little threatened. And so verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. So here we are on the streets of Jerusalem and the Pharisees, has, they have drug a lady out who was caught in the act of adultery. Now get the scene. They didn't hear about the act. They caught her in the act. I'm going to guess they didn't say, ma'am, if you don't mind, if you'll kind of clothe yourself, we're going to kind of take you off. I think they took her from the room. So here we have this scene of Jesus getting ready to teach about this love and grace and second chances. And the keepers of the law have, has drug a half-naked lady out. What little bit of dignity she might have had left was completely gone at this point. And so they began to position themselves in order to trap Jesus, but Jesus leverages his position to begin repositioning. And so here's what happens. Verse 3, here she stands, verse 4, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, I don't know if, if you catch this, but I do. When I begin to unfold this, here's what I see. I see a flaw. Being a little bit of a, a, a of kind of a critical thinker myself, a problem solver, I begin to see problems here. I begin to see this is a setup. Here's the questions I raise. Number one, I want to know who caught her. Can we be real? I doubt this lady was, you know, doing the deed in the middle of the street. She was probably in the confines of a room or a hostel or a brothel or something. I want to know who caught her. And why were they in that place? Are we just dealing with a peeping Tom? Did somebody kind of walk down and go, I hear something going on in there. I wonder what's going on. Let's just go, oh, you're a married lady or he's a married man. I want to know who caught her. And second, I want to know this, who, where's the man that she was caught with? I don't know about in your world, but it takes two to tango in mine. I want to know where the man is. See, this is, this is not about helping a lady overcome her sin. This is not about helping a lady overcome where she, her current situation that has degraded her and demoralized her. This is a trap. And so they go on to say, all right, Jesus, the law of Moses commands such a woman to be stoned. Now, what do you say, Jesus? And then they expose themselves because here's what they say. They say, well, they're using this question in order to have a, a, a basis for accusing him. So again, let's make this clear. This lady, according to the law, deserved death. According to the law of Moses, anyone that was caught in the act could be convicted and could be put to death depending on the judge and the jury. And so there's no doubt what this lady deserved, but here we are in the midst of this moment where it seems to rest in the hands of Jesus. So Jesus, we're going to wait to hurl the stones based on what you say. And they knew that Jesus knew the law because they had heard him teach in the, in, the, in the temple courts. And not only did they hear him teach, it seemed to be that he had an inside track. I mean, after all, Jesus was there when the law was given. He does kind of have an inside track to the heart of the law since he is, what, the Son of God. And so here they have this moment where they say, okay, we're not really out to get the woman. We're not out to make, you know, Jerusalem a better place. We're not trying to get rid of this sect of people that is destroying the very fabric of our community. No, they were trying to trap Jesus. And here's how. According to law in that time, they could convict someone of a crime, but they could not carry out the execution. Rome had to do that. So in, within this Jewish system, they would have to convict, and then they would have to take that person to the Roman government and say, okay, we have convicted, we have found them guilty, now you do the execution. So here's the quandary that Jesus is in. If Jesus says, kill her, they've got him because he has stepped outside of Roman jurisdiction. If he says, well, just let her go, then he has no respect for the law that he claims to be a teacher of. And so here Jesus stands in this showdown, and they say, and they're proud of themselves. They go, Jesus, what do you say? And here's what Jesus does. But Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground 
with his finger. So here's the, the moment. Everybody's leaned in. It's the gladiator moment. Thumbs up or thumbs down. And Jesus stoops down and begins to write. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what Jesus writes in that moment, and we don't know. Some believe that what, what he wrote in that moment was prophecy, that he referred to, to Jeremiah chapter 17 when Jeremiah says this. He says, Lord, you are the hope of all Israel. Who for, all who forsake you will be put to shame. And then get this, this is why people think this is what he initially wrote. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken you, Lord. So whatever it is, here's the moment Jesus is writing this. But here's what we do know. That this moment, while we don't know what writ was written, we know what was happening. And it's a powerful moment that we can't overlook. What he does, he gets in the dirt with the lady. He squats down. And here they are standing in their robes, fully decorated, stones in hand. And Jesus decides that I'm going to squat down and I'm going to minister to this lady. And he goes on to say, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And guys, this is so characteristic of Jesus. It's why Mike did what Mike did. It's in this moment where Jesus kneels down into our world. He gets into our dirt. He gets into our messiness. He gets face-to-face -face with us, full of compassion, not standing over us, but down ministering to us. And he says in that moment that your current situation does not define your destination. And then it's that moment that he chooses to be an advocate. He chooses to be an extender of second chances by warding off those who are trying to rob you thinking you deserve the second chance. And he looks back and he says, I tell you what, those of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And then I love what he did after that. It says, verse 8, then he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again. And I believe that this was the moment where Jesus, this time, was writing answers to the question he just posed. I think this moment he was writing something different. I think this was the moment where he was going, Rabbi Matthew, greed. Rabbi Luke, lust. And he scans the crowd again. Rabbi Marcus. Gossip. See, what Jesus does in this moment, he exposes who they are. See, this is not a story about a woman caught in adultery. This is a woman who's been delivered at the hands of Jesus. It says that though at that those who heard began to walk away one at a time, the older first. And so they're beginning to walk away thinking that they were going to expose Jesus or thinking they were going to expose a lady, but instead they get exposed. This is not the way they planned it. And then it says 
until only Jesus was left with the woman. So there's only two. Jesus looks at the lady, and, and again, this is the way I picture this moment. I, I think, Stephen, this is a, a kind of a similar moment that you, because you mentioned a minute ago, you were tired of being seen the way you were being seen, and my guess is that you were tired of not being seen. And I think this is the moment that Jesus, because I believe that the woman had not made any sort of eye contact at this point, I believe this is the moment, still standing in the dirt, where Jesus begins to brush her hair away from her face and lifts her chin and wipes her tears and says, it's just you and I. Because he goes on to ask her, he says, woman, where are they? See, she had no idea what had happened. She had no idea that they had left. Has no one condemned you? And in her humility, she says, no, sir. No one. And Jesus ends with one of the most powerful statements that he's ever delivered. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Take another chance. He extends that second chance. And you know, at this point, I'm not even for sure Jesus needed to say that. But he did. I think this encounter with Jesus forever changed her life. Because I believe that any moment we have with Jesus has a way of putting sin in its place. And it has a way of putting our life into perspective. It has a way of changing our trajectory. It gives us new leases on life. And a defining moment that would change her life. See, Jesus calls her to something better. Mike was calling Stephen to something better. Something greater. Something more. And we got to keep this in mind that Jesus didn't just give her a free pass. Didn't give her a free pass to continue to do whatever she wanted to. He makes it clear, listen, I know that you've sinned. You know, we're quick to throw that one, aren't we? Like, go and leave your life of sin. Well, by the way, we don't get to be Jesus in the story. We're the woman. But it's in this moment that Jesus changes her life because he sees through what she's involved in and who she is. Let me put it this way. It wasn't that he embraced her sin. It was that he embraced her. And he embraced her because he loved her. And all she needed at this moment was the exact same thing that Stephen needed. He just needed to be loved into another chance. And Jesus loves this lady into a second chance. So how did Jesus go about bringing life-changing moments to this young lady's life? How did Mike go about bringing a life-changing moment to Stephen? It wasn't with judgment. It wasn't with even following every letter of the law. It wasn't this harsh, you know, get your life together and then we'll talk. It wasn't any of those moments. It was this. It was getting in the dirt with eyes of compassion, with a voice of love, with a message of grace, 
with the gentleness of someone who really deeply, genuinely wanted to save not just someone from execution, but save their, them from a life of this kind of stuff. And so here's what I pray as we kind of end today's story is that I pray that we, two things. A, we step into second chances. Because we live in a world that says, oh, you don't deserve second chances. You, you know, the old, you make your bed, you lay in it. And this lady was laying in the bed she was making. So don't be afraid to step into that second chance, making that second chance the most. But I want you to know this too. I pray that we become advocates of second chances. That as followers of Jesus, we become advocates of that. We carry that into the streets of Nashville or the streets of Goodlettsville or the streets of Hendersonville and into the hallways of our workplaces or the hallways of our homes. And we say, you know what? I'm going to be a second chance giver. I'm going to extend second chances. I'm going I'm I'm to, in the name of God, understand what he has done for me. And you know what? I'm going to begin to extend that through others. And here's what I get from me personally today. I, this interaction with this woman tells me all I need to know about the heart of Jesus. It tells me all I need to know about God's desire for my life personally. And here's what I mean by that. The second chance that Jesus offered wasn't based on innocence. It says she was caught in adultery. You're going, well, but I've got too big of a past. And there's, you know, Jason, I'm telling you, man, I've got. Jesus' offer of second chance had nothing to do with her being innocent or guilty. Second, I see that Jesus' forgiveness of sin is not limited by the gravity of my sin. Yeah, but Jason, I've got some really big sins kind of tucked away that I don't want anybody to know about. Guys, she was caught in adultery. That's one of the big ten. And it's that moment when Jesus looks across the table and says, Are you done? Are you done? Because your your gravity of the sin is not what determines the ability for me to forgive sin. There's no big sins, small sins. I've taken care of them all. I've nailed them all to the cross. I have overcome all those when I walked out of the grave. This interaction with this lady tells me that Jesus is the only thing that stands between me and death. Because it says what? The law says stone her. But Jesus stood in that gap. And so if we want to go down the road of what we deserve... It's death. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me stand in the midst of that, the middle of that. What I see in this story is that that Jesus' forgiveness proves that his desire is to heal, not condemn. Because he said, neither do I. Guys, we live in a world where I think that that the the popular opinion of God and religion and Jesus is that all you people want to do is condemn. And I'm telling you, that's not the Jesus I serve. And so before we get on our Facebooks and our political 
platforms and go, well, but, you know, God expects better. No, Jesus extends second chances, and that's the end of the story. Can we position ourselves in our salvation, in our grace, and in our our, our level of forgiveness that we've been extended, can we position ourselves for the repositioning of someone else? Jesus did. And then I see this as the story kind of closes out. I see that Jesus' forgiveness of sin doesn't give permission to keep on doing it. No, it's a call into something greater and something better. It's newness. So he says, listen, leave life of sin, there's something better, there's something greater. You know, for some time, I think we've kind of coined this as a religious or a Jesus statement, and it's not, but the statement, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. You know, Jesus never said that, by the way, right? How about we try this? How about we love people? If you're going to hate anything, hate your own sin. Deal with your own stuff. Create community where people can understand that, you know what, I'm dealing with my stuff, but I'm here for you as you deal with your stuff. And if you need me to sit and play in the dirt with you for a minute, I will. Because I believe that that moment will lead to a greater moment. And sharing that story of you sitting in the dirt hopefully will inspire someone else to get up out of the dirt. I like to believe, while we don't know what happened to this lady, I believe this lady went on to change the lives of other women in similar situations and other men in similar situations because when we encounter Jesus things change and when we grab hold of a second chance that we think we don't deserve or we don't think is possible or we don't think we can even fully get, comprehend Stephen, things change because that's what God does so stop worrying about how people measure up to you or how they measure up to this thing called church and just start loving people, extending those second chances, and in doing so, maybe you become the mic in someone else's story. Father, this morning, I'm grateful for the message of second chance. I'm grateful for Stephen's story and how it is going to create a wave of second chances in the city of Nashville. God, I'm grateful that Andy sought a second chance. God, I'm grateful that there's stories like this lady who, oh, it was, it was, it was bad, as bad as it could get. But you still, even going against the grain of the law, said, no, let's extend second chance. Let's love beyond what even the law will allow. Jesus, can we be those kinds of people? I pray that you give us the strength and the courage to do that. I pray that you allow us 
to grab hold of our own second chances and then become an advocate of others' second chance. Thank you for making all of this possible through the cross and through the resurrection, God. I'm grateful that his strength covers my weakness, that his spotlessness covers my sin. I'm grateful that we get to share in the community with Jesus. We pray this through your son's name.